Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Gnarly Munchies. Hope everything is good. Hope everything is well. Good morning, motherfuckers. Good afternoon, you fucks. And good evening, bitches. Whatever time you're listening to this, whatever time zone you're listening to this, I hope you enjoy this episode because this is a really, really, really special one for me. Um, This is a special one for skateboarding in general. If you pay attention to Gnarly Munchies, I hope we have more episodes like these and more exclusives. But without any further ado, I present to you the legendary John O'Malley. Name a song, and he'd be like, "All right then," and he'd you know show me something, and I'd have to learn it. And, but uh, he eventually, you know, well, he was there for day one. Yeah. So I mean, I could have stopped. I mean, most I think the odds are that most people do stop. You know, when they start something like that. Right. Most people quit before they even get good at it because it's I too came, hard. But I came here. And I started doing this 10 years ago. Wow. I've been playing in... Hold on, so for 10 years, you know, you know, I've probably passed by you a couple of times. And so I don't get this spot that often. Yeah. So usually there's a sax player. Yeah. Or in the evening, there's a little Chinese um, girl the, playing the... The loot thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, no, no, no. Right, no, he, that guy doesn't play here anymore. No? No, 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 thank God. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, in in the evenings, at starting at two, there's a uh, cellist. A cellist. A little ah. Chinese cellist girl. Ah. A little emotionally imbalanced, nasty little. Cunt. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> the colorful <laughs> and the legendary. Introduce yourself, sir. I'm. Oh. Yeah, I'm. Re- oh, I, this is John O'Malley. The, the great John O'Malley. <laughs> <laughs> the only one we have right now. Yes, yes, and um, I'm already laughing my ass off. I I can't control my ribs right now, but I pause that. Yes, sir. Okay. Um. So where were we? Um, we're just talking about our different lives. How? Oh, you, know, you, you just yeah. talked about getting. Okay. All right, so on it. on two different occasions, I was the only white guy at an all-black advertising agency. How'd you manage to do that? I get along. And, oh, well, I'll tell you. Well, I'll tell you. I was working there, and they got a... So I was the, like, a guy in the studio and stack stack guy and stuff like that, just doing production-type stuff, not creative. And um, I got sent up by an agency or something like that, and we just liked each other. We just loved each other. Wow. And, oh, God, I, I worked with that. What year was this? Oh, fucking the 80s. The 80s? Dude, I was the only black guy in an all-black agency in the I was 80s. the only white guy. I mean, guy. sorry, only white guy at all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I uh, I remember they got, a, they got a guy, got a, a young black guy in there, and he was just a fuck off. <laughs> and I was in like the stat room and I heard the creative director talk to him and he said now check he goes you gotta straighten up and fly right and you gotta start coming in on time he goes otherwise I'm gonna fire you I'm gonna replace you with the white guy he goes he's good and I like him and um oh shit <laughs> he didn't know I was and I kind of <laughs> snuck away but, right so that's and so Chet Chet was fuck all and um he was just into drugs and partying and stuff and um, 
and Coke was big during that time, so. And, and so I got the job. Nice. And, um, what a, what a was, crazy story. So anyway, what, was this, what was the advertising firm called? Uniworld Group. I don't even know what that is. If you knew a little bit about advertising, particularly, uh, you know, like minority advertising, you would Uniworld Group is like the General Motors of the thing. Oh, yeah, Byron Lewis. But anyway, so I, I, it's like the first day I get there, and the, a couple of the creative directors, they said, come on, John, you're coming with us. we got to go uptown to the recording studio. I'm like, wow, these fucking guys just know that I'm a musician, and I got away with a song, and I have a good ear, and yeah. stuff like that. And we get downstairs, and they said, listen, you got to get us a cab. So I'm not going with them to the studio. They don't know any of this shit. They... <laughs> But they said, we are really running late. We can't fuck around with the cabs. So I got them the cab. Right. Because in, in the, this would have been in the 80s, early 90s. And I'm like, still? And they're right. like, yes, still. And I'm like, oh, shit, guys. So I'm the white guy gets the cab. So I get the cab. They got in, and I go back and mop the floors or whatever the fuck I was doing. <laughs> but, and, they, and they weren't, like, uppity about, about it. They were, like, fucking pissed and annoyed and embarrassed. It wasn't like... Oh, yeah, it's kind of... It wasn't like, yo, yeah. boy. And, um, and it was all... Yeah, it was yeah. like that. That's a I was oh, Okay, I was there the day the OJ verdict came out. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was there the day... But you're old Mally, so it doesn't really count. No, it, it it counts because I'm a witness to what happened. But I, you're an old Mally, so as you know, like the Irish and blacks, we kind of get along because of the whole slavery thing. Oh, yeah. No, no, I mean, um, I was there the day that the OJ verdict was released. And so this is a big company. This is three floors of black people, each floor with their own conference room, or at least the creative services floor had a conference room. Right. Packed with people. This is at a time when... The, Places didn't have TVs. One TV. Right. With, I was in fifth grade. Packed, it was like that. Packed with, Afri packed with African American people. Two or three floors of this. I'm good with that. If you want more, tell me. I'm all right. And um, all right, this is usually good. works pretty good. And um, anyway, the verdict comes, and I'm I'm in the studio. I'm working. I don't want to see. <laughs> right. I, I mean, anyway, and the place erupts yeah. in in applause. And, and um, cheers and adulation. Right. And, but that is mostly like the secretaries and stuff like that, like the creatives. Like I remember Angela Walker, brilliant young black copywriter girl. And she, and she walked out of there and all the creatives, they, they, all the creatives, they walked with their heads down and shaking. They were ashamed of, of the OJ verdict. And, most of the rest of the people, like the secretaries and stuff, they were they couldn't have been. They were all high fives and positive vibes. Anyway, but they, but Angela, she walks. She's like down the, the hall a little way. She walks. She sees me. She clenches her jaw. She looks at me. She shakes her head. And she keeps walking. And I'm like, all right, I'm with you. We're all we're all on the same page. But she was just like ashamed and embarrassed for it. Yeah. But for mostly for the reaction. Of the adulation that most of the company had she, they were just anyway right because we all knew he was guilty <laughs> but everybody knows he's guilty but, and no matter but um, it was a, it was certainly a momentous day yeah uh, you know 
the one time in history that a black guy got off from murdering a white woman. That's that was it in was, a comedic sense, it's fucking hilarious. Right, right. And but right. in a real world sense, it's kind of sad. But I was there for a long time, and um, they're still very much like in my family. Nice. Uh, when I moved to New Jersey, one of the guys I was tightest with there, he was he lived in my neighborhood. So we've grown, you know. Yeah. I've seen his kids grow up and stuff. So what got you into like the whole skateboard thing? Because like, you know it's 1960 and yeah. it's new, it's brand new. I was I it, I wanted to be a surfer. And my people weren't beach people. I was going to have to figure that whole thing out myself. Getting right. a surfboard, getting down to the beach. I lived in the middle of the island. Irish. Yeah, yeah. No, they don't know. They, didn't, they weren't beach people. Right. And, um, no, it was just something. It just, I started doing it. Um, no, you saw it on TV or something like that. Okay. And I'm like, that, yeah. Because I was, I had already started, like, swimming, you know, being, you know, being like a lap swimmer, taking all the lessons, knowing all the courses and stuff like that. Right. And I was skimboarding, and the skateboarding came along, and it was just so much more uh, easy to do, accessible. You know, skimboarding is, you, you don't have much opportunity for that. And okay. um, and that was it. And uh, I saw it on TV. You know, you, you saw how to make it. You take the... You take the roller skates apart, you know, it, like, the classic thing. Everybody says, I took my sister's roller skates apart. I took a pair of roller skates apart, and we did that. My dad made a really nice board. Right. It wasn't a two-by-four. It was like probably like a one-by-six, and he rounded it off on both sides. Okay. And um, that's how it started. And that's... And I had, I had three... My first three boards had steel wheels. Jesus. I know. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like riding on steel wheels? Like, what does that feel like? <laughs> oh, it's, um, you feel, it's extremely unstable. And the wheels themselves are like crimped aluminum. And so they're, they're really, they're thin and they're, I mean, they could break in any minute. Uh, Where would, would you ride? Like, how, like, what type you, of surfaces? You, you would go straight down a hill. But it must you, have been the most uncomfortable ride. Yeah. Oh, it was all very, but you were gliding. It was that, it's, it's, it's the centrifugal buzz. You don't have to go to the ocean to get it now. You don't have to go to right. the mountains to get it. It's, in, it's right here now. I can get that little. Right, you can around and. A little bit. But how and did you, and now, the, now my biggest question is how did you turn? Because I look at the, the, the way they're built. I mean, is it was a straight line or you just, you slide? Really, you didn't really turn. I would, um, we had a little driveway little tiny typical Cape Cod house and I would start at the top it had almost no elevation difference at all and go down and eventually I think I could make the turn that was like the thing that was like my great accomplishment and then they came out with skateboards with uh, you know roller skating setup you know the, right. the clay wheels right. and the, the better trucks and right. um, which was all still crappy you know, <laughs> right? But it was a hundred, a thousand times better than the steel wheels. That was not like a tenable thing at all. And um, and I bought a Hobie, the best one. I bought a Hobie, the the beige ones that look like surfboards and have the yeah. belly in them and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, and the guy, I would get them from a place in. Um, 
Levitan, Emilio's ski and surf. It's still there. And um, the guy that so. ran it, his name was Winifred. He was an Austrian guy. Okay. And years later, he came by the skate park. This is in California. Right. And I wasn't there, but he left me a note and it said, I remember you well. He goes, I'm so proud of you. Wow. And Winifred, but he, I guess he must have been in California for a while. Wow. Wow. Like that. But anyway, yeah. That, that's, I'm, wow. It's a cool thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I try to do that now, you know, with people. Yeah. Come, yeah. People who have come up and, yeah. I've had protégés, I mean. I, I mean, I think every everybody does have someone they want to take. You and have to. Mold if somebody does, somebody I mean, some, there was always somebody there for me. Yeah, you had Jack, right? Oh, I had a number of, uh, of like teachers. Okay. Uh, mentor. I had a number of mentors. Okay. Jack was probably the first, and then uh, one of our partners that we took on when we expanded the skate park business. Um, now these guys are straight up hardwired geniuses. I mean, Jack is a genius. Yeah, these guys are. These guys are in charge of geniuses. <laughs> The genius in charge of the genius. Yeah. So, it's a huge responsibility because genius is a madman. They like the, that borderline. Like, uh, if you read the book on um, Professor the Madman, the creation of Oxford Dictionary. No. No, yeah. that's ain't. That, yeah, but that's like right movie. up my alley, though. There's a there's a movie that they made with uh, I think Mel Gibson. What's it called? Uh, Professor the Madman. Okay. So the, the guy, he's straight. I believe he's schizophrenic, and he's actually responsible for the creation of the Oxford Dictionary. And he shot uh, this man randomly because he was having uh, flashbacks from a war. Oh, yeah. no. These guys were straight up functional fucking geniuses. You know, so a couple things. One, they are in charge of other geniuses. And two, they, they become billionaires. Okay. And so these guys are now my partners. So now, um, so I got a, mentored by one of them, Tom Rockwell, Dr. Okay. Rockwell. Now these guys... They met in at MIT. They went to MIT and they have a, an armload of postgraduate degrees. Uh, both of them have um, multi-doctorates and uh, like a master's and stuff like that. And they begin consulting with the Rand Corporation while they're still in school. Do you know what the Rand Corporation is? No. Okay. The Rand Corporation is the think tank that the, uh, the army started. Okay. And so in the 60s, the army was very unhappy with what was going on in Vietnam and also having an atomic weapon. So they said, we have to figure out a way to not have to do this anymore. We have to stop this. So they put together the RAND Corporation standing uh, for research and design. And um, they wanted to make it attractive to fucking geniuses. So they bought a building right on the, wa right on the beach in Santa Monica. And Wow. And they paid them like motherfuckers. And they would get all these Nobel laureates and stuff like that. And these guys worked on a branch that consulted directly for the White House. So as people still in, uh, at MIT working at RAND, they were going and, and um, briefing like the president. And so Tom Rockwell, one and one of them uh, Tom Rockwell, was a, uh, he's a mathematician, he's got a PhD in math, and he realized he's not going to make any money doing this, so he 
got his MD, and then he, he realized it was an opportunity to make money in um, operating uh, emergency rooms. And he did that. Oh. And, um, but they both had ran. And Tom said that he, they made him, they thought that he was orga had organizational skills, so they had him running some projects instead of you know him working on a, a project. He was running a project. He goes, I had four Nobel laureates working for me. This is a man in his twenties or early thirties. These guys are smart, you know. Like you see, they come down the block. You're like, what's going on here? You know? Yeah. Anyway. So, and the other one, also named Tom, he became director of telecommunications for the White House. And um, yeah, Nixon liked him and, and, and hired him out of Rand to be, so he basically went from college to working in the White House. Yeah. For mm -hmm. as, as, well, that's not a cabinet level position, but something like that. Yeah. That's Tom Whitehead. And Tom Whitehead changed the world, and Tom Whitehead changed your life. How so? As director of telecommunications, he did not invent any of this stuff that we use, but he saw that it was coming. He saw that computers would be more accessible and that they would probably be ubiquitous, and they were going to need not the physical structure, but the legal structure in within the society to create the legal structure for this coming technological interconnected requirement and he did that and so for instance he talked nixon into privatizing the satellites so we own the satellites the government owns the satellites but they lease them to only like AT&T. So nothing's gonna go through there except for AT&T business unless you pay, a, you know, a dear price. And right. um, people just didn't have a, a need for satellites, you know, at that time. Right. We didn't move data, but anyway, Tom could see this coming. So he built the infrastructure for this and he, and particularly focused on the satellites. And um, he, so, it went from AT&T, Solamente, to now there's millions of channels and cable channels and cell phones and stuff like that. This is before cell service, this is before cell phones were invented. They had portable phones, but it was a big deal. Right, like they were so expensive and you had to carry in this giant briefcase it was a thing. You had to, yeah, you had to have it in your car or something like that. Yeah, it was accessible to everybody. Yeah, anyway, um, so Clay, Tom Clay Thomas Whitehead, and he, he went on to, um, to build the European satellite system for them. And um, I know that um, they, he wasn't happy with something, so he sued them, and they wound up paying him an additional $52 million. Well, damn. You went against the government? No. He was an American citizen, probably suing the company, a company in um, uh, in um, Europe. Okay, okay, I probably missed. Yeah. So anyway, wow. so okay. he did. Uh, he set up our satellite system, and then he set up the ones, uh, the satellite system that the Europeans started. 
and was paid fabulously for that. And also, he made them pay them pay him an extra fifty-two million bucks. <laughs> like you know what? I feel like I got an inadequate paycheck. Let me get an extra fifty-two million on top of the whatever they paid him before. So, so Tom Ooh. passed away young. Um, but Tom Rockwell still lives. I saw him like uh, two months ago. Yeah. I went to see him in Malibu. Okay. And he lives the life of an anonymous billionaire. He's got, um, he's, he's in a wheelchair now, but he's still a fucking genius guy with a trillion dollars. So he's got a pad in um, Malibu and they're all nice and it's got a fence around it. Right. And he's got people that work there for him domestically. It seems to be at two or three like young dude, fuck all kind of dudes. Yeah. And he had a lady who I thought was his wife. And But anyway, so what he does is he has gotten into 3D printing. And he 3D, and he 3D prints shit, crazy stuff. Um, but he, he 3D prints human ears for replacement. What the f- I know. Ew. Well, no, uh, you know. Is it? Yeah. The air ear? Like the feel? If you don't, if you don't have an ear. Oh, I. Oh, you know, I didn't touch them. He's, he has. His, he had his rejects around, and I just thought it was just some kind of a weird fetishistic thing. And then I realized, oh, no, they're printing. They're making. They're making real replacement ears. So he's on the like. He's doing some crazy space shuttle deal. I know. <laughs> what do you do? You know, you get a lot of people with a billion dollars and all they have is personal problems. Let's make myself better. And, um, now I don't know what, anyway, but he's, um, so he's foreseeing a whole nother, he's on to a whole, wow, wow. And, so, and I'm, he, and he, and he funds a, um, a program at UCLA for strokes and, um, he also, so he, and he, he funds something for strokes and he funds uh, a research he says that will enable them to totally cure hard cancers. Now, I don't know what that means. I think I understand what that means, but I don't understand. But I've read about it. So that's what he's doing in, in, in his old in his 80s. I mean, you talk about nobody knows this guy. You Google him, you will find nothing. Dang, I don't know who he is. Right. Like, I, mean, I would I, love to know who he is. No, the but guy you, who's uh, the other guy, you, you, you Google Clay Thomas Whitehead, and it's, and it's just like, oh, okay, wow. It's going to take me a while to sort through this. Jeez. His widow's still alive. This man's foreseen medical technology that we can't even imagine at this current Because they didn't imagine satellites that's going to relay information across the entire planet. He was the guy who said, hey. Right. It's kind of breathtaking. Yeah. I want to ask some questions, too. Like, I want to know, well, scientific questions. It's like, so what do you think is next? Like, what's, what's like, what do I have to look forward to in my lifetime? Not, well, forget the next 100 years, 50 years. When he was at RAND, he also dealt with, you know, military intelligence. And just like me, now, I got friends in the skateboard business. 
He's got right. friends who are still deeply ensconced in the uh, intelligence. Thing. Right. And, and Ukraine, the, the war in Ukraine had just broke out. It okay. was probably, it was, this was, it was probably three months in and nobody knew how it was going to go. And he said that all, all that stuff, actually, that the uh, left-wing media has been saying yeah. that the judges are incompetent, that there's no chain of command, that the, it's all true. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I, it's come to pan out like that, but I'm like, like it's extremely reassuring to hear. Like, hearing it from CNN, I don't know what they're going to tell me. Right. They, they just want me to keep on watching. Right. So, but it, hearing it from somebody who says he can't, you know, divulge his sources... Um, I mean, I always it's very, it's very, it's very re reassuring. Yeah. Because I didn't. Yeah. So you, because you know. I kind of understand it in the sense because there, there's times where I run into those certain people in the street because I do uh, food delivery and I like to communicate, like to talk to people, mm -hmm. and I, I may run to a government official and I'll be like, hey, watch out for this that, and third. And they can't really tell you where they heard it, but they know information. You're just like, all right, I'll take it. And then you watch it a few weeks later, a few months later, and you hear about it like, oh shit. It's one of those reactions, like, oh shit, I should listen. So it's when we when I talk about these guys, we're talking about the assembly yeah. of the Nixon administration. We talk, we're talking about the nucleus and how it's being run. So when they were at Rand, they worked with Ehrlichman. And you're probably not going to have this at hand, but the Pentagon Papers, the leaking of the Pentagon Papers, is what brought the whole thing down. Not Watergate. But it brought the whole Vietnam thing down. It brought everything down. Wow. And Ehrlichman was the guy that um, leaked the Pentagon Papers. And they're part of the team that went with Ehrlichman to them. And so they... So he, in a sense, he created his own demise? No, but they were there. No, 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 no. no. Neither, of these, neither of these guys um, did anything bad. In fact... No, the Nixon guy. Nixon created his own... Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And and but everybody knew that Ehrlichman was extremely imbalanced. He was like a guy that you really wouldn't want to be around. It was like that. So oh. and now these are all Republicans. Right. They don't like that at all. Nobody likes that at all. They certainly don't like that. Yeah. But um, Nixon had a an eye for talent. You know. You know. Forget. The, the scandal and stuff like that. He had these really brilliant people. Right. He, there for he definitely a long time. did. He definitely had brilliant people. I mean, regardless of what he did, like he had brilliant people. So after the re-election, um, Jerry uh, Jerry Ford, Gerald Ford, the vice president, had a, had has a bro that's come up through the ranks with him. Yeah. Not his chief of staff. He comes into Tom Whitehead's office, closes the door, and he goes, "Jerry's going to become president." Nobody knows this. <laughs> And so you have to create the new government. Get and, the fuck out of here! What and, the hell? And Jerry Ford had never wanted to run for president, so he didn't have what they call a black book, a, a, a book of his platforms. So he was just winging it? No, he, he was... Uh, Agnew had been fired and impeached. Okay. And so he was put in just randomly. He's just a guy. And then the shit hit the fan. Like, uh, Jerry Ford was put into the Nixon administration before the water, uh, before Watergate 
was a big issue. It wasn't, it wasn't an issue until sometime later. And so nobody ever had, and Jerry Ford never wanted to be the president. He never thought, well, I'm gonna have a campaign, I'm gonna have a book. So he was really out of left field. And, um, but somebody came in and said to Tom Whitehead, you're gonna be in charge of running the country. You're gonna be in charge of putting together the people who are gonna run the country. So they had to, who's gonna stay, who's gonna go? How are they gonna get rid of somebody they didn't like? And so they got together and they, um, they had these meetings. He had a place in Georgetown and uh, at a house in Georgetown. They got together and had these meetings at his house, these clandestine meetings. And that's how they, they changed from government, from the Ford to the, uh, from the Nixon to the Ford administration. Right, and so now these guys are my partners. And, ooh, hold on, give me a moment here. <laughs> It's a lot to take in. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Fuck me. Oh, it's crazy. And, um, you know, it, again, it was like this synergistic confluence and of people your... of, of events. They came, you know. And this is the people that you've learned from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Holy I'm, shit. I'm like 22 years old and just dumb and obnoxious on coke and shit. <laughs> Yeah, and they said, hey, come here, kid, we got you. Yeah, no, they, they were great. I mean, when you saw a guy like Tom Rockwell, Dr. Rockwell, yeah. when you went into his office, he's got a nice office, and, but his desk has nothing on it okay. except for um, a little cup with um, sharpened pencils on it. And he was able to have somebody come in. I guess he'd make notes on a legal pad from time to time, but I never saw him do anything that wasn't out of his head or refer to anything now that you know but his partner Tom Whitehead from the White House he said that he would just have somebody come in and dictate the letter in one take and then he she would type it up and he signed it he goes it's he's never seen anybody be able to do that before this is, is nobody I don't know anybody in human history that can dictate a letter in perfect, and perfect and be like hey this is perfect um go ahead Without reviewing it and have somebody oh. else review it. Oh, he, he would. Oh, well, I don't know how many times it took the, the secretaries to type it, but by the time when he got it, it would be perfect. He would never revise it. There was no him. He never went over with a red pen. What was it like working with these guys? Jesus Christ. Well, they opened their mouth and just brilliant ideas and and a way to go and how to finance all of this. So Tom Rockwell, he left Rand and started a company that supplied all of the staff for the emergency rooms in Los Angeles County. So he had on his payroll every doctor and every nurse um, in Los Angeles County that worked in a hospital. So that's the kind of money that's billionaire dough right now and wow and in the face of that um, investment bankers will open up yeah it's, it's just like okay I have whatever you want so we so it was the plan to open to open up to quickly open up a series of skate parks and have them be the best <clears throat> and so Tom Whitehead was good at handling all the municipal stuff 
you know, getting the, the uh, permits and right. working with the city because people don't know what the fuck this is. Yeah, he's the government guy. Like, he, and so he's running that, and Tom is putting together the financing, and we are building the skate parks. So this is working real well. And um, anyway, so that's how we set up our. Once it was just Jack and me, um, we realized this is just like. We're on the, the tail of a comet here. Uh, yeah. We have to bring in, and so we really lucked into these guys because, you know, as I mentioned in the book, you know, the um, entrepreneurial waters of Southern California, you know, trend culture is just teeming with sharks. Right. I and mean, there's just always no somebody way. trying to come up with something because it's Southern California. It's and there's and there's a million guys trying to steal it from you. <laughs> At that skateboarding, how? Um, holy crap! So, yeah, and none of that's about me. No. You can, you can pause that for a minute if you want. We are back on. Thanks for this. Oh no worries. We did, but I we did it at La Costa when the good wheels came around. Fiberglass boards. We would, you know, La Costa was right there. That's another sort of great coincidence. Right, the downhill runs with the mob. Yeah. That blew. That blew my mind. Like, how did they not, like, day one, say, what, what the fuck are you kids doing here? This is a big place. This is like we're not. You're not going to see us if you look out the window. Okay. I mean, La Costa is. Well, we should, we'll, we'll get it on the map, the map program later. But um. We would do it, did it like in a bathing suit, and that's all. No shoes. Ouch. Right. And so now, this really wasn't a thing. People didn't know, oh, you do the downhill and this and that and the other thing. I had to figure this out myself out. Now I'm going 30, 35 miles an hour, and I just, I just decided I'll keep my front truck steady and right. hope that the back one falls in line because you could feel you get in the wobbles I'm like oh my god I have no clothes on right. except for a bathing suit <laughs> and you're like I gotta figure this out like for real and right, right right now so what I did was I bore down on the front truck kept it under control and got to the bottom and never did that again wow I'm like that was really fun <laughs> but nah Never again? No. No, never again. It's, no, not even with clothes on or pants and stuff. Okay. It was just too much. It was just like you could... Okay, so you, you could run into the curb and break something. So this is before Burke and um, Cliff Coleman came up with this with their slides, bro. The Coleman slides. Oh, slide. yeah. Well, the Burke slides. Yeah. I'm, well, Ty Page was doing them. Oh. I, you know, like in 1975 or 1974. Yeah, he he yeah, he's not really noted for it, but wow. um, yeah, he would do it. He'd come. That's to, interesting. He, like, he, how is he not noted? That's kind of crazy. Because he's so good at so many other things. Uh, but uh, Warren Bolster has um, uh, has a a sequence of Ty doing it, and yeah. it's never been done before. But nobody made a big deal out of it, probably because nobody else did it because it was so hard. He just did it standing up. There's no putting your hand. Oh, down. he was. No, wow. No, he would do, He was doing standees before they were stand-up slides. Yeah, he would do that. Wow. Which is 
I wouldn't even think about doing something like that. That's crazy right there. Yeah. Now he's got um, he's got the urethane wheels. He's got a good board, but he doesn't his trucks probably are not are nothing special. They're no, probably well, we Chicago trucks. No, they're probably Chicago trucks or they would have been roller skate trucks. So there's nothing like we had today, so the stability and wow. The good trucks came along quickly. He might have been riding Bennett's or something for okay. that shot. But um, oh Ty Page, he's you know, he might be the best skater I've ever seen. He was just fabulously gifted and then driven and then supported by his family. Wow. Um, I mean, there's Ty and there's Tony, I think. Okay. And, um, but I got to see Ty a lot. I got to see Tony a lot, but he, but um, I saw Ty, uh, you know, on a, on a, not a daily basis, certainly a weekly basis. Okay. And, um, the thing that you can do with the walkovers, you know how you take your board and you... Yeah, you crawl. That, yeah, that. you kind of like a walkover. Yeah. He could do those so fast. He could just, he could do them like a maniac. I think they have footage of that. It's online where you see and go... It's just, yeah, and, and, you, and you go ahead and... Um, uh... Warren had to upgrade his uh, motor drive from a standard, like back then standard was nine frames a second, to a 30 uh, frame a second motor drive, which is something nobody had back then. And he did that, he got that just for film and tie. Wow. Yeah, they get a whole new. He, yeah. But, uh, wow. I mean, Warren is. But Warren was a Warren is a legend. Like there will never be a photographer like him. Nobody. You now Warren didn't invent any of these techniques. Um, he used it better than most. But nobody applied them so well and so broadly. Yeah. You know, like um, he would. You know, when racers were going by, he would pan with them and get that blur effect. Right. Nobody else did that. And yeah, you know, like when they were starting the magazines. Warren was the only guy that had this real footage. You have to remember that, you know, outside of that, it's a guy in a parking lot shooting a picture of his kid. The footage that you're that that is accessible even from the really good surf photographers, it's just not that great. It was Warren that applied that like in the tube fisheye style and then added the front flash to it. Right. Nobody was doing you know. But he was also a really good surfer, like Yep. That oh yeah, Warren's his, a great surfer. That was his thing. It's like being a good surfer makes allows you to get those shots that most people wouldn't be able to get because you can push yourself in those situations and know where the body, where somebody's body's gonna go if they fall or they're, and they're going. Especially in a working with a professional surfer, that has got to be the most difficult thing in the world. Yeah. And but he would go and work with a, with a guy. Usually for surfing, if he was in the water, he would probably be working with one guy on a particular thing, and he would know. When the um, when the sun would be right, he would know when the light would be right, and he would probably focus on the light, and and have the guy come when he needed it. But then there was the you know, have the waves and the tide and yeah. surf. It's a whole and but that's how he worked. And um, another form of genius. Oh well, Warren was, and you know he. If you read the book, you know he was brought up in Australia. Yeah. 
he was a, the son of like the um, Diplom he's a diplomat's kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it was one of the high, he was one of the highest ranking diplomats in Australia. And um, so he would go to the beach every day in the in the in the car in the Cadillac. Right. And like they had a Cadillac with the flags on it. So he would he wanted to go to the beach. They had the car, so they sent him. You know. Yeah. Go. And. Um, so I, I think Warren was just used to like, you know, okay, people are going to do what I tell them to do. You know, if I ask nicely, right. he was eminently polite and self-effacing and just right. polite and just totally self-effacing. He was really insecure. Insecure, wow. Yes. I mean, maybe his experiences through life, like seeing his family as diplomats and have to see... He was adopted. Oh, oh. Wow. Um, there's something there and then you know he no, you know he was substance abusive and nobody really talked with him and sat down and was like yo Warren you're not that you're not in that kind of environment in the surf and skate not comparatively today because I know today it's more it's more like no, reaching no, no. out. It's, you know, the lunatics are running the asylum here. You know, there's no everybody's you know everybody's doing it. But okay. like with like the guys who surf a magazine, they knew how to put out a good magazine, man. They never they have never put out a bad magazine. Surfer, as you know, it's just a fucking beautiful magazine and trend setting. Um, um, and the, their other magazines, Powder Magazine. I think Powder Magazine is still printed. I'm not sure. Snowboard Magazine. I know it's a snowboard magazine. But, again, in its day, um, just the most beautiful Powder Magazine. I had a friend who was an editor at Ski Magazine, and she said that they were all about powder. <laughs> as, like, hey, as, we're as, ski, but uh, these guys over here are better. They loved it. It was just a whole That's cool. Different. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but they, those guys know how to put out a good magazine. And... Really, look at the competition. How many good surf magazines are there? As far as how many good surf magazines are there? This surfer. I mean, and, everybody and, knows about surfing because it's legacy. And it, and Surfer's Journal. Mm. Oh, yeah, we all, I just know surfer because of the legacy. Like when we get like together a, next time, I'll bring you my okay. Surfer's Journals because you don't okay. you don't throw them away. Okay. But I don't keep shit around. So. Um, <laughs> Oh, there are coffee table magazines um, on surfing. Oh. And um, it's put out by Steve Pesman. Okay. Steve Pesman is the, he's the original thought of, of the whole thing. Steve Pesman husbanded, he started surfing magazine or international surfing, whatever it's called. And then he husbanded, he husbanded surfer for 20 years, I don't know, I don't know. And then he started Surface Journal, which is a real one-of-a-kind thing. Oh, you'll, it's a whole, yeah. Yeah. That's... And they publish my work once in a while. If I get lucky, they put it, they excerpted my book. Yeah? Yeah, they ran the chapter titled, The Big Bag of Cocaine. <laughs> I have to reread that chapter. I'm rereading the book right now. I'm... Oh, thank you. It's really, yeah. it's really yeah, it's kind. It's a good book. It's, it's a good book. It's a lot if of you're fun. a skateboarder, like, you should read that book. You should know your history. Um, well, I think it's more about culture. the start of something as, yeah. a, as opposed to 
just skateboarding. It's about the birth of something. Right, because everybody has that experience of starting something from nothing and then watching it grow, and then when it finally hits, like, and to be also be wow. at ground ground zero of something that turned into something big, like those guys in great in, in England, all those uh, uh, rock guitar guys, Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy right. Page, they're all like neighbors and stuff, you know? Right, they're, they all knew each other, they all they, hung up in the same and bars. And they met the Beatles and it became this nucleus right. of, well that was the same thing as this. We all forget that part, like all these rock and rollers hung out in the same area. Yeah, so Hendrix was there yeah. with them. Uh, that's what really did it for Hendrix, being with those guys. And, um, so it's like that, and you see these, you know, like uh, these little pockets where things are invented. And so this very much was like that. It had this uh, synergistic confluence of these people that had the, the vision. But how did you get the word to spread to go from a few people to like hundreds to thousands? It did, that, that did it by itself. And then Skateboarder Magazine. Uh -huh. Because I didn't have the internet then. That was a different way to market. Like to market anything back then was totally... And, and Encinitas was unique in... It had a lot of skateboarders really quick because the Bane factory was there and they were making the wheels. So, the, you know, the, everybody was bringing them home for their friends and stuff like that. They'd take them or they'd buy them or whatever they did. But every there was a million groms in, in Encinitas they, and they were all skateboarding in a way that it wasn't anyplace else. Okay. I know that uh, the Dogtown guys had a had a good team and a crew up there but I think as far as you know the quantity yeah. Encinitas was just packed anyway for a little tiny nothing town it was just an anomaly um, so there was that and then there was that intense amount of skaters packed into Encinitas and I think that that's where Warren first started to see wow these it's a whole thing like so, he was living in in uh, in North County at the time. Right. So I think that he got the the jump start on like this whole, oh wow, look at this, and then and then he put the template of the the '60s surf template on it and made it into a lifestyle. He he had the lifestyle vision. It was Warren that had that vision. And he had the complete vision for Skateboarder Magazine. I mean, he came to them with the photos. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. You look like you're finning in a little. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something about a Van Gogh? Um, I have the, uh, I had uh, Bubbles Grip Art paint my board. Van Gogh's Starry Night, but with Nimbus Clouds. So, oh, that's one of my. That, yeah. guy, that guy noticed it. Yeah, Van Gogh's one of my favorite artists, and of oh, course, kind of Starry Night is one of my first number one favorites. And then there's um, Haystacks. And then I'm more of a literature person. I like to play with Gertrude Stein. I try to play with her um, writing style. But it's pretty hard. I did poetry for a long time, rap. I didn't like the industry of music, so left that alone. Why? I write and record. I mean, it's fun to do it by, like, by yourself, like just to practice, so to say. Now it's more of a hobby. 
than what it was like oh, I wanted to do this for my as a childhood because that was all I was introduced to. It was skate, skateboarding took a while. Yeah, it's just something I've always done or yeah, it happens or whatever. Yeah. It's a magical thing. It just happens. A lot of it happens. I'm watching well, yourself this, too. This doesn't. This the, doesn't just happen. This no. doesn't just happen. No. No. Oh, this is a whole different thing for me. No. Like the whole. Oh no. Becoming like playing a string instrument. Yeah. How did How did it happen? Um. It happened because I got a a, a balance toy for my. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's. I was uh, I got a, a voodoo board for my for my house. Okay. And I um, for, to use during the winter for the layoff to practice for surfing. Okay. And I taught myself how to do the cross step on it. Very difficult to do. You, there's no room for error at all. All right. And I could do it like a ring and a bell. And I I would I was on the thing the whole winter long eating my dinner, watching TV, <laughs> talking on the phone, on the voodoo board, doing the cross step, doing the cross step back, and I could do it like a ring and a bell, like nobody's business. I'm the only one I knew that could do it. It's not impossible to do. Right. But anyway, so I go out, I'm, at, I'm surfing at Ditch Plains in, the, in March, first wave of after my layoff, and I'm not trying to knock off the rust, and I go into, and it's a, a kind of a big stormy day, and I go into a cutback and I lock it up and I'm falling off. Ew. And my feet, all by themselves, bam, bam. They, hey. they knock out the cross step and I skate out of it and I'm like, wax on, wax off, <laughs> Mr. Miyoti. You know that? Yeah. <laughs> it was Miyoti. like, it looks like, it was like somebody had wired the money into my account mm. before I got there. Mm. That's what it was like. It's just repetition. It was Right, and I realized it was just that monkey work that I did. I was having fun. Yeah. And I realized that it would be the same thing on the violin. Mm. All you had to do was do the monkey work, play the scales. And I don't watch much TV, I don't enjoy much TV, so I'm happy to smoke a little pot. Yeah. Play scales for a while. Oh. No, play scales for an hour or two. Okay. That's how you get good, though. <laughs> but every day. Yeah, every day for an hour or two, you'll get and good. And after four years, I start doing this. And then you're playing 24 hours a week for 10 years. So you pick it, so you get, I only do one particular thing, but you get good at it. Yeah. That's pretty right. So I, um, gave me his fiddle I was looking to start anyway and I started on that fiddle and I got a guy the cantankerous old Irish guy and he wasn't as much a teacher as he was somebody to go and listen to because I didn't want to learn the songs he was showing me mm -hmm. I just wanted to learn songs I liked and somewhere over the rainbow is not any harder to play than a lot of other things and um, and I just stuck with it. And then when I came here, I had this, this sort of, um, I, had, I wasn't able to get a job as a designer. Hello, sweetheart. Oh, I have 
I have my lunch. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dogo. Um, and I just I came up with um, some practice toys that added like years to my playing. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, I had never used a, a stringed instrument. My, it was like doing it with my feet. Right, because uh, your fingers start to become so callous I, and I, stiff. I, I used... Um, no, my, my hand was in good shape, but it was just oh. useless. My hands are still in good shape, thank God. And, but it was, it was totally useless. And um, so, uh, during my commute, I would use a hand strengthening your finger thing. Oh, the, um, yeah, it was yeah, like, the, it's like the, trumpet buttons. Yeah. yeah. So I used that. I had a couple of them, and then that helped. That took, and it, it works quick. Like a couple weeks of that, and I'm like, all right, all right, all right. All right. And um, and then I'm watching. I had, I got a uh, fingerboard for a smaller fiddle, but I marked first position on it. You know, smart. I just I just scored it with a knife. All right. And I would walk around with the thing in first position. No, you don't have to play it. Oh. You just have to do this. Oh. So I walked around like I still walk around like this. Cool. Cool. I still have I, I still do this. Um, but I do so this this was like adding two years on to my right. practice in just a couple months. It, it just it just it puts first position in your and um, it's building habits to... Yeah. It's just the muscle memory. Right. Because this, it doesn't make any difference that it's here. It's the same as being here. Right. It's the same thing, regardless. That, that particular thing. Right. That particular part of it, you break it down into little drills. Same thing with surfing. And um, so, and then for my right hand, after I got my left hand under control, I would walk around and bow hold, yeah, like that. See, I, I know I got it wrong. I'm right, you're never wrong. gonna get it right. So bow hold is like, you know, you want to do it like this. It's like that. Bow hold is, yeah. I'm, I'm hold. never gonna figure. I always try bow to hold is like this. That's bow hold. Oh. So I've I, tried once. <laughs> I w I just grab a, a pen or a pencil. Yeah. And I walk around with it all the time. Wow, it's pretty cool. I mean, I don't want to hold you if you have. I'm gonna play. I, I'll go back to playing, and we'll do it again next Friday. Yeah. You want to yeah. record me a little bit or something? Sure. Or do you have I'll, enough? I have an, I have more than enough. I have more than enough memory to record a little bit. And uh, John, thank you. This, uh, this I can't wait. Next week. Yeah, this is totally fun. I I don't think you've ever done a podcast or um. Every huh? My publisher didn't do any publicity, and then the lockdown came. Oh, uh, yeah, because you created the... You should have did a lot. I mean, what? What is your publisher doing? They never booked you on a little of this? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. They never booked me anything. They, uh, Arcadia Publisher, Arcadia Publishing, and I'm happy to have them, believe me. Nobody right. wants to publish your book. Um, they publish mostly gift books. Oh... I don't think they were prepared. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm a, a whole different thing for them. In fact, they, and everybody recognized that they don't make color books, and they printed mine in color. Right. Which I didn't care. I didn't care if they printed it in color or not. I just was ecstatic to have it done. It's really cool to have your book published. Like, yeah. I think that's dope. And I'm I'm working on a screenplay now. What? 
Oh, are they gonna make this to a movie? They're gonna make the story into it. Well, I have to. I have to. I have to create. I have to write a script. Oh, that's gonna be a while. Well, I got ninety pages done. Ooh, but they're, they're not very good. It's not a very good ninety pages. Okay. Or it's certainly not a very organized. So, so we're looking at like a dog to load a dog sound part two. No. Oh my God, no. <laughs> no, no, no. It's nothing like that. <laughs> you said, oh my God. Was it that bad for you? What's that? Dogtown. Oh, I love those guys. No, the movie. Oh, the um, movie, the movie. Not the, oh, not no, the, guy. the, the movie, movie was great. Okay. Oh, stay. Oh, we're all so proud of Stacy for doing that. Okay, because I, I personally enjoyed the movie. I was like, why? Oh, I like the other one too. Um, but um, you know, the problem is that people have just. Uh, sort of comported everything else into them being a really good skate team. So those guys, great skate team, best team ever. Right. But they didn't like invent and start all this stuff, and they they have overclaimed on their like There's so ownership, much missing ownership of style and stuff like that. And you know, I, recently I went to the Midwest. Uh, not two years ago. Holy crap. I went to the Midwest, and there's like a whole Midwestern story that that happened during your guys' era. This is like um, I'm not so sure about when it was and how it happened and stuff like that. But Warren always had a complaint that um, he could never get good submissions from any, any uh, from other places in, in the in the states, <laughs> and it was because you know the crews weren't that great. Right. And there's no photographers, and there's not a lot of terrain. No. You know, California is unique in having all that great terrain. Right, because it's start. I mean, it's a big city. It's Hollywood. It's California has all that great, like those drainage ditches oh. and, and stuff like that, because California okay. clay doesn't drain. See, we have big rainstorm. Yeah. Right. Nothing. No puddles and stuff. In California, the water doesn't leach into the ground. It just runs off. It's a desert. Oh. oh. Very few places. It's a desert? Cal California is a desert. Oh, yeah. No shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without the Colorado River, there's no California. No shit. How much I know about my geography? <laughs> well, that's the, well, the movie Chinatown tells that story, or a version of that story. Anyway. So, in California... Once they started building cities and stuff like that, they couldn't have floods of water randomly. So they have all these massive spillways and drainage uh, culverts and of all different sizes. So there's a, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's why they have... That's why they have terrain in a way that New York has nothing like that. You know, the drain, they have in, on Long Island, they have sumps. And that is... An area dug out, grassy area dug out that the storm drains and em emptied into, and then those drains something happens. But the aqua dug off and the place with, and but my point is, on Long Island you can just fill a hole up with water and it's going to drain. Right. Anyway, because I fell in a Long Island dish before my bike. Yes. Get fun. Growing up in from in Queens, like I was 15 minutes from uh, Elmont. So I'd ride to, we'd ride up Elmont to the racetrack, come back down. 
yeah, yeah. Yeah. What kind of trucks are these? Uh, these are. I think I'm riding Paris's today. Oh, those are nice. Yeah, they they ride pretty well. Oh no, I can't do it. This is all got mud in it. Of course, I would let you ride on board. That would be an honor. To... Yeah. Okay. I'll play a couple. Yeah, sure. I wrap an hour here anyway. Uh, so you have like time frames? This is extremely structured. Police, police, police intervention happens from time to time. It's impossible for one, but you know what? I mean, the girl would come. Yeah, anyway, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, a whole different we'll talk about that next. 